Hey, good morning, guys. Good to see you today. Um, you know, a lot of people, they think of the Old Testament as, a, as an outdated book filled with obsolete rules that really don't apply anymore, right? Um, nothing can really be further from the truth because the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. And for him, it was something that was alive and relevant and active and more, 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 more heart-striking than anything else. And that's what it's meant to be for us today. And so this year, we've been going through the Old Testament, looking at Jesus' Bible and the impact that it, that it continues to have on us today. And last week, um, in the middle of a snowstorm, we began a journey through a, a collection of Old Testament passages that talk about God in a very specific way. We think about God like Father, right? Lord, maybe Savior, are these ways that you pray to him or, or, or think about him? But, but one of the ways that the Old Testament, and again and again it comes back to this, talks about God as our husband. And what we did last week is we began opening this door to see what does this mean and how does the Old Testament unpack this? And we began last week by looking at how how sometimes the Bible will picture our relationship with God filled with something that, that just has heat, something that has passion, something that has hunger the way that a young husband and a young wife have it on their wedding night. God as my lover. Today we're looking at a different side of that coin. What happens when we cheat? I find there are few things in this world more painful to folks than infidelity. When a, a young husband or wife or, or one you know, of 30, 40 years even comes to you and they tell you that they've been having an affair or worse, they don't bother to tell you and it's found out. When they come and they, they, they tell you, I'm in love with someone else. I've met someone else. Or even if I haven't met someone else, it doesn't really matter because you know what? I don't love you anymore. That level of unfaithfulness hurts. And if you've ever experienced it personally or have watched a good friend or a family member go through this, I think you know a taste of what I'm talking about here today. Now, if God is our husband and God is our lover, then to be unfaithful to God is akin to adultery. And adultery in a relationship with God hurts. And what we're going to be looking at today is how that kind of adultery happens and what it does to the relationship with God and what God says he's going to do about it. Now, uh, if you got married here at Fellowship of Faith or, or uh, in a Lutheran church or, or for that matter, really in any kind of church setting, you probably said wedding vows that look something like this. These are the wedding vows taken right out of the book that I use to marry people here. And, and, and they're basically a variation on a tight theme used everywhere. And let's just read them together today. Obviously, it would switch husband to wife as appropriate, but you get the idea. 
Will you have this woman to be your wife, to live with her in holy marriage according to the word of God? Will you love her, comfort her, honor her, and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be husband to her as long as you both shall live? Now, after that, they would typically answer, I will, I do, yes, you bet, yeah, okay, uh uh-huh, or any variation on the theme, all right? The next part is when the couple would face each other and they start saying them to each other. It's kind of uh, initiated with a repeat after me and you see them actually verbalize paragraph two. I state your name. In the presence of God and these witnesses, take you, hopefully the person standing next to you at that moment, (laughs) to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death parts us, and I pledge you my faithfulness. If you happen to get married by a Christian minister or in a church, this or some tight variation to it is what you said. Now there's a lot packed in there. The nature of vows is trying to be brief with a lot of density. But I want to show you something that echoes through these vows that comes out again and again in about a hundred different ways. And it all deals with this basic issue of faithfulness. You and you alone. Check out the yellow. You see how it keeps coming up again and again? I choose you. I choose you no matter what. I choose you for good. I choose you until, until death breaks us up. I choose you in the good times. I choose you in the bad times. I choose you. I choose only you. Do you see how it's again and again and again? The entire wedding vow is almost like an anti-adultery clause. I mean, do you see that? Now, made the case last January that what God entered into with Israel at Mount Sinai when he brought them out of Egypt was akin to a marriage. And the Ten Commandments, in many ways, functioned as God and Israel's wedding vows. Now, I want to show you commandment number one. It starts like this. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And do you know it? What does it say? You shall have no other gods before me. Do you see how it is an anti-adultery clause? Do you see how in many ways it's functioning exactly like a wedding vow? God in Israel, what we are entering into here is like a marriage. I choose you, God says. And Israel's vow back is, God, we choose you and you alone. Now, I want to talk for a minute about this thing called God. Or maybe better put God's. You know, we, we, we think of God, we think of God on high, but I don't think we tend to think of other things as gods. And I think when we go back and read the Old Testament, part of the reason it seems outdated or strange or like it doesn't click is because culturally they're doing all kinds of things, specifically worshiping idols and worshiping gods that just don't seem to register. See, I think that for most people, God is defined as some kind of divine being or statue that we worship, right? Guys, if that is your definition of God, it is too narrow. 
there's a, uh, a theologian from the 16th century. His name is Martin Luther. And he wrote this teaching manual. And in it, he, he made some comment on what this first commandment is about. And I just want to show you this line that he wrote because I think it kind of just captures the heart of this. I love this. He says, to whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that I say is really your God. To whatever you give your heart and entrust yourself, that's your God. You don't have to believe that there's some divine being orchestrating it all. You may consider yourself an atheist. You know what? You still have a God. Everyone has a God, or maybe many. Because whatever you give yourself, whatever captures your heart, whatever is first in your life, not just by what you say, but how you orient yourself, that's what a God is. And to entrust yourself to anyone but Yahweh, to to give your heart to anyone but him, it's spiritual adultery. That's what the first commandment is about. Does that make sense? You know, this is why the Old Testament rags on idols so much. Is it because there's some kind of inherent damaging in saying a five-second prayer to a piece of wood? Because it's about something in here. Because idolatry isn't about that either. He writes later this. Idolatry does not consist simply in setting up an image and worshiping it. Idolatry is something in here. Let me ask you this way. What do you idolize? What do you idolize? That is your God. And rooted within these Ten Commandments is this idea of faithfulness to the one true God as the primary thing that captures your heart to the only one that you fully give yourself to. Now, no prophet explores the ramifications of breaking this more than Hosea. Now, I want to talk to you about him a little bit. There's this little book in, 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 in the back half of the Old Testament called Hosea about a prophet named Hosea. Now, Hosea writes in a time um, kind of like a modern-day America. It's the mid-8th century B.C. Israel is enjoying a lot of luxury, a lot of wealth. People are getting wealthier. There's prosperity and abundance The kingdom has expanded its borders to to the glory days of like King David and almost King Solomon. And and, and people have realized that, that we have so much. God is a bit of an afterthought. Because in our day to day, we really don't need him. And with it, uh, with the prosperity, a lot like America came things like, like poverty. You know, things on the other side, injustice, immorality, a spirit of do what you want, because it doesn't matter. Because there doesn't seem to be any divine repercussions from God, no matter what I do, so who really cares? And it's into this situation that this, this prophet Hosea comes going, remember your vows. Remember your marriage. Remember the God that you pledged yourself to. 
trying to wake Israel up from this unfaithfulness that they happen to be in. Now, I'd like to invite you to open to Hosea today. If you're not careful, you'll flip right by him. It's only about 12 chapters long, maybe a bit more. Tucked back in that section of all those names that no one knows how to pronounce. And what I'd like you to do is look at a couple of things about how how Hosea brings this out. And I'd like to invite you to turn to Hosea chapter 1 with me. And look at what he says at 1 verse 2. In 1 verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, he tells Hosea, the prophet, to do this. Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. Go take, go marry an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. Now, if you're using a chair Bible, you're using a translation called the NIV. It's the one that I read as well. But you know, it doesn't really fully do it justice. And if you start to look at other English translations, it even brings something out a little bit more clearly. Let me show you. I I love how the ESV puts this. It's a newer translation. It says this, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. It's just, it's a lost word, isn't it? I think we've got to resurrect the word whoredom in our vocabulary today. Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. I read one translation where it even put it like this, for the land loves to go a whoring. I mean, just I feel like a bard and a minstrel should be leading the way after you say that. It's a bit stronger, isn't it? And probably a bit more accurate to what God is telling Hosea to do. It's not just an adulterous wife. Go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom. Or if we should settle just for simple clarity here today, look at how the NLT puts it. Go and marry a prostitute. Go and marry a prostitute so some of her children will be born to you from other men. And this is going to illustrate the way my people have been untrue to me. Do you know what God tells Hosea to do? Go marry that whore. Because that's what we are. Whores. All of us. You're a whore. I'm a whore. Everywhere a whore whore. Don't you dare think of yourself as anything less. Because that's exactly what the Bible says unfaithfulness to him is akin to. And until you come to terms in your own heart with what you've become in your relationship with God, you will never be able to come to terms with what he's done for you. And Hosea is commanded to go and marry this prostitute is a big living parable. Got to be thinking, God, why don't you just let me have a story? Keep reading on with me. And so, in verse 3, he married Gomer, 
Just a rough name. <laughs> Daughter of Diblaim. Do you know what Diblaim means, her dad's name in, in Hebrew? Fig cakes. Okay? Doesn't that just sound like a pimp to you? <laughs> this is daddy fig cakes. And she conceived and bore him a son. And then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, um, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre of Jezreel. Call, call him basically this battlefield where Israel got slaughtered. Name your child after a bloodbath in Israel's history. How about that for a complex? And in verse 6, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And they said, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means, I don't love you. For I will no longer show to the house of Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show to the house of Judah and I will save them, not by bow or sword or battle, but by, or horses or chariots, but, but, but by the Lord your God. And after she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. And the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my kid. Not my people. Not my kid. Are you catching it? For you are not my people, O Israel, and I'm not your God. But then you see this thing tugging at God in verse 10. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted, which is a way of him saying, but I made a covenant and a promise to you long ago, and because you're unfaithful doesn't mean I will be too. So in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah, the people of Israel will be reunited and they will appoint a leader. Say of your brothers in chapter two, my people and of your sisters, loved one, he tells Hosea, go marry that prostitute. Take her kids as your own. She conceived and bore children. Were they his? I don't know. And name them, not my people, not love, not my kid, but you know what, despite their names. Treat them as your own. Now, something happens between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Whether it's Gomer going back to her life of prostitution, whether it's a marriage between Hosea and Gomer that became more and more estranged or ended in divorce, something is not quite explicit in the text, but something happens where the couple separates. And what the rest of chapter 2 does is go through almost kind of this, this sense of, of, of God like a cheated on husband. As I read this, just try to hear the feeling, the emotion, the pain, the questions, the struggle, as God tries to make sense of how his wife can cheat on him again and again and again. He says in verse 2, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face, the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I'll strip her naked and make her as bare as the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turning her into a parched land like, like the time of the wilderness in Egypt. I will not show love to her children because they're the children of someone else. 
Their mother has been unfaithful. She has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I'll go after my lovers who give me what I want. Therefore, I'll block her path with thorn bushes. I'll wall Israel in so she cannot find her way. She'll chase after her lovers, but she'll not catch them. She'll look for them, but will not find them. And when she has nowhere else to turn, she'll say, I will go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her and lavished on her every good thing. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens. I won't do that anymore. I'll take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her. I'll let her be exposed in her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take out of No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations. I will ruin her vines. I will make them a thicket. I will punish her for the days that she decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after lovers, prostituting herself out. But in verse 14, but I am now going to allure her. I'll speak tenderly to her. I'll give her back the good things. There she'll sing as in the days of her youth. In that day, she, you, will call me again my husband, not master. I will remove the name of her other lovers from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant with them. I will renew the vows. And with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground, warfare I will abolish abolish from the land. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. And you will acknowledge the Lord. Do you sense the emotion of God coming out in this? I love you. I hate you. I love you. I want you. I'm done with you. I want you. The flip-flopping, the confusion, the, the, the conflicting pains of how could you to come back to me? It's just this picture of God like this, this, this cheated-on husband this cheated on husband by one he loves. Who doesn't give the same love in return? Now at the end of this, it comes into the beginning of chapter three. Homer and and Hosea, a million miles apart. And look at what God tells him to do. Go. Show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another. And is an adulteress. You know why? Because that's the kind of husband he is. God is a God 
who marries whores. He's a God who even when we jilt him so bad and rub his face in it, his heart continues to break. He's a God that when we give our hearts to every single other thing in this planet and flaunt it, he yearns for us to come back. He is a God that when we cheat over and over and over again, not only pursues us, but continues to reach out his hand going, come back to me. The consequences of what you're doing are dire. Come back to me and I will love you like a husband again. That's who God is and that's what God says to each of you. You know, maybe you're here today and you are cheating on your spouse. You know, a simple way to start undoing the damage is to go back to the one you cheated on and say, I am so sorry. You may never want to take me back, and I understand. And regardless if you ever do, I'm stopping what I did because what I did was wrong. I am so sorry. And there is nothing I can undo to take that hurt away from you. But if you'll have me, I want to pledge myself to you again. To those of you who are cheating on God, it's the exact same thing. What are the gods of your heart? Do not delay. Tell him today. I'm sorry. I cheated on you. And you have no, no obligation to take me back. And whether you do or not, I will end it because I know what I did is wrong. But if you'll have me, I'll pledge myself to you again. And you know what God says? That right there. No matter how badly you've damaged that relationship with him, God hungers to renew that vow again with you. So guys, I want to invite you to rise And I want to give you an opportunity to do that here today. Last week we began going through a new passage of scripture that we're seeking to memorize. It's this, this incredible chapter out of Deuteronomy that talks about the love 
God wants us to have for him. Today, maybe you just need to tell him out loud. So I invite you to say this together with me. Hero Israel. Hero Israel. 